Now take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and let me read just the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for for you. We're so thankful for your uh, love for us and thankful for the opportunity we have now to open your word and to study this great book. And we pray, Lord, your uh, direction over our study in total and our study this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, you'd help us to see the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that would make a um, practical, tangible effect in our lives and in the life of this fellowship. So we pray that you'd honor yourself in our study. In Christ's name, amen. Someone has said he came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the law of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence. He had neither training nor education in the world schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled the king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the seas asleep. Uh, He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold all the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, yet he healed more broken hearts than doctors have healed broken bodies. This is Jesus Christ, the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion uh, and lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, the healer of all diseases. And throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. and The grave could not hold him. This is our Christ, the preeminent one. And he is the theme of the epistle to the Hebrews and dominates this book from one end to the other. What a great opening statement. And with those words, we begin our study, our exposition of this wonderful book of, uh, of Hebrews uh, that exalts the supremacy, uh, the, the superiority and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ a superior and preeminent over everyone and everything. And, and I think it's going to be a tremendous study for us. I think it's going to encourage us. Uh, it's going to challenge us, I think, in many ways. I think it's a, a timely book for us uh, in the day in which we live, and I think it's going to be a great adventure. Uh, the eminent preacher John Owen, who translated into English the a commentary written uh, in Latin by John Calvin, said next to the book of uh, Romans, it is the most important epistle in all of the New Testament, uh, saying that Hebrews should obtain in the church the place and the honor of an invaluable treasure. So there's going to be many things we study through this book. There are going to be deep spiritual truths, uh, things that perhaps at times are going to be difficult to grasp, things that are going to demand our faithful and diligent study with the help of the Holy Spirit to grasp the truths that are contained in this book. One New Testament commentator, Donald Guthrie, says, for various reasons, this book poses more problems than any other New Testament book. So many of the questions which the investigator is bound to ask cannot be satisfactorily resolved. So there's going to be some issues that are going to be difficult to understand, some issues that perhaps we won't come to a firm conclusion on. But nevertheless, the theme of the book is Christ, the preeminence of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Arthur Pink in his commentary says, this is the superabounding excellency of Christ or of Christianity over Judaism. The sum and substance, the center and the circumference, the light and life of Christianity is Christ. 
Therefore, the method followed by the Holy Spirit in the epistle is developing its dominant theme to show the immeasurable superiority of Christ over all that had gone before. One by one, various objects in which the Jews boasted are taken up. In the presence of the superlative glory of the Son of God, they pale in utter significance. They are shown, one his, uh, in this book, are shown his uh, superiority over the prophets, his superiority over angels, uh, his superiority over Moses, his superiority over Joshua, his superiority over Aaron, the superiority of Christ over the whole ritual Judaistic system, uh, which is developed by showing the surpassing excellency of the new covenant over the old covenant, superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over each and all of the Old Testament saints. In the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians have the substance, the reality of which Judaism contained, but the shadows and figures. So in Christ, we have everything uh, that the Old Testament pointed uh, forward to. Now, the first three verses are really the introduction to the the book, but I think I need to make a few prefatory comments, a few uh, uh, introductory comments before we get study or before we get into the uh, uh, exposition proper. And as you know me, it's probably more than just a few introductory comments, so you'll uh, you'll uh, be uh, kind to me as we kind of get some of this background information that I think we need before we start to study the book. Probably the one issue that comes to the forefront is the the authorship of the book. Uh, when it comes to the authorship of the book of Hebrews, volumes that literally have been written on this topic. The third century theologian Origen said, who wrote the uh, epistle of Hebrews, to be sure only God knows. And he said that in 225 A.D., and so theologians since 225 A.D. or perhaps even earlier at the dawn of uh, the Christian era have debated over the issue of the authorship of the book of Hebrews. And they didn't come to agreement on it. And they haven't come to agreement on it up to the day in which we live. So I'm certainly not going to rise above uh, the last 2,000 years and solve the problem in the next few minutes. All right? Uh, there's been a tremendous amount again written on the issue. Most probably would say that Paul is the author. Some say perhaps Apollos, some say Peter, uh, some suggest Luke, who's uh, obviously a, a Paul's doctor friend, perhaps even Barnabas, who was uh, Luke's or uh, was uh, Paul's traveling companion. Many other possibilities have been thrown out there. Some say even Priscilla, who was married to Aquila. Perhaps she was a possible author of the book, but she's probably the easiest one to rule out as the writer of the book because the writer uses a masculine pronoun, me, in uh, Hebrews 11.32, which eliminates the possibility of the book being written by a woman. So if you want to stick with uh, Paul as the author, I'm okay with that. Uh, you, you can do that. Many of people, again, throughout history of the church have taken uh, that position. When you study copies of the uh, original Greek New Testament, this book is always linked uh, with the writings of Paul. Even most printed editions of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, have followed an understanding that Paul is the author of the letter. And again, there's been much written to defend that uh, position of Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews. On the other hand, there's been also a lot written uh, to disprove uh, Pauline uh, 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 authorship of the book. Uh, Those who deny Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews uh, would do so based on the internal one internal statement found in Hebrews 2, uh, verse 3, and also on the basis of major differences of vocabularies in this text and Paul's other writings. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken of through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the conclusion from that verse could be drawn that the writer had not heard the Lord Jesus speak personally, but had to rely on uh, reports of others uh, about him. And of course, Paul states categorically that he didn't receive the gospel from anyone except Jesus Christ himself, Galatians 1 verse 12. He also heard the the voice of Christ on the road to Damascus in uh, Acts chapter 9, and then again Jesus spoke to him afterward in Acts chapter 18. So many would take the position that Paul could not be uh, possibly the one who wrote uh, the the, the uh, words of the, the book, but especially the words there in the Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, there are two truths I think that we can account on, two truths that we can be confident in. Uh, ultimately, the author of the book of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit. Right? Ultimately, the author of the book of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit, Second Peter 1, verse 2. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by Holy Spirit spoke from God. So God is the ultimate author. 
The second truth, uh, there are things that we can know about the author that, again, come from within the book. Um, <coughs> excuse me, there are at least a Six different authorship facts that we observe when you work through the book. Fact number one, uh, the author writes Hebrews as an exhortation. He writes as an exhortation, Hebrews 13, verse 22. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. So the book is written to be an encouragement. It's written to be an encouragement. It's written to be a comfort uh, to the readers. Many have suggested that the book has many elements of a a sermon, so most see it, or a lot of people would see it, as a sermon in written written form. In fact, there are many pastoral admonitions, as you might expect to hear in a sermon uh, in this book. For example, Hebrews 2 verse 1, uh, the author says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the author is pastorally encouraging the Hebrews uh, to remain faithful to what they have heard, to, to God and his word. Hebrews 3, verse 12, take care, brethren, lest there should be uh, in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened with the deceitfulness of sin, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast at the beginning of our assurance uh, firm until the end. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and might find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, Hebrews 6, 1, therefore leaving the elementary teachings of Christ, let us press on to maturity, uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So uh, encouraging pastoral reminders. Uh, Hebrews ten nineteen. Uh, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast uh, the confession of our hope uh, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. A couple more, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding, let us lay aside every encumbrance uh, to which uh, so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The last one out of Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let love of brethren continue. Right? So it's just a, uh, a many admonitions, uh, as you would see from a, of a heart of a, a pastor, many admonitions uh, from the writer of the book of Hebrews exhorting uh, these uh, people to faithfulness and to trust in Christ. Uh, the second fact concerning the author, uh, he knew intimate details about uh, Timothy. Uh, and then goes right with it. The third one, uh, he was, whoever the author was, wrote from Italy. And you get both of those in Hebrews thirteen twenty three. It says, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released uh, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of the leaders and all of the saints from, uh, all, all the leaders, all the saints from Italy. Greet you. So this man knew Timothy, had intimate, detailed knowledge about Timothy. And again, he writes from Italy. Uh, The fourth internal fact concerning the author, uh, he has a tremendous grasp of the Old Testament. The writer of the the book of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Septuagint uh, rather than the uh, uh, Hebrew Old Testament. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of of the uh, Old Testament. Uh, It's a favorite book, uh, and uh, his favorite book, the author's favorite book, uh, is probably the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and, and then the Psalms. And when you get to chapter 11 of the book, you see that the writer has a tremendous knowledge of the book of Joshua, the books of Samuel, and then the prophetic books. There are, in fact, 35 explicit Old Testament quotations in Hebrews, 14 from the Psalms, 13 from Genesis to Deuteronomy, one from First Chronicles, two from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah, one from Habakkuk, and then one from Haggai. 
one from Proverbs and one from Zechariah, and many other Old Testament book allusions. And many of the allusions from the Old Testament come again from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was written in Alexandria. That's why some people would argue that Apollos was the writer of the book of Hebrews since he was from Alexandria, a man who is eloquent in the scripture that says in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. The fifth fact that you find in the text concerning the author is the author has a deep grasp of how Jesus Christ has replaced the Old Testament law. You see it especially in Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, John Calvin believed this is one of the reasons that Satan uh, uh, attacked the authorship of the book because uh, the book is such a clear explanation that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. Jesus is the end of the law. The sixth fact internal in the book concerning the authorship uh, is that the author is totally uh, totally committed to communicating truth about Jesus Christ. Right, so again, many leaders would, would conclude this passion for the person of Jesus Christ, some of the background information. Perhaps, again, the, the author was either Paul or someone who's even very close associate with Paul, perhaps even a traveling companion. Now, what makes it difficult to determine accurately the authorship of the book of Hebrews is that it opens up, unlike most New Testament letters, uh, because the, the uh, author is not named. The author doesn't uh, give his name. He doesn't follow the normal pattern of, again, stating who he is and then to whom he is uh, as addressing. So he doesn't give his name. He renames and remains in anonymity. And many have suggested the reason is the author wants to stay in the background. So he's doing this intentionally. He's trying to stay in the background because he wants to put the focus uh, completely on the person of Jesus Christ. So the letter just kind of opens up and it opens up abruptly with the word God. And then proceeds to describe you the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, that's the intent of the author. To focus solely and immediately on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes to that which is most important as fast as he can get there. The superiority of this person. And one of the ways that the author puts forth the superiority of Jesus Christ overall. Is he uses the comparative term better. Better. B-E-T-T-E-R. He uses it numerous times. Jesus Christ is better. Uh, Hebrews 1.4, Jesus Christ is much better than the angels. Uh, chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus brings a better hope uh, to, through which we draw near to God. Uh, Hebrews uh, 7, verse 22, Jesus uh, has now become the guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, Hebrews 8.6, he's obtained a more excellent ministry to which he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which he's enacted on better promises. Uh, Hebrews uh, 9.23, Jesus offers a better sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 10.34, a better possession. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 26, a better country. Hebrews 11, verse 35, a better resurrection. The author not only uses the word better, but he uses the word great, often in reference to Jesus Christ, speaking about the fact that we have a great Savior and a great salvation. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 14, we have a great high priest. Uh, Hebrews 9, 11, a greater and more perfect tabernacle in the person of Christ. Uh, Hebrews ten thirty five, a great reward. 12, uh, verse 1, we have a great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. And then Hebrews uh, 13, 20, Jesus Christ, he's the great shepherd of his sheep. So all these superlative words, again, that point to the person, the superiority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as to when the book was written, uh, there are four internal observations that might uh, help us determine the date to some extent. Uh, Number one, it's written during the days of Timothy. Again, you read that in Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, Secondly, it was apparently written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because in a number of passages there are present tense verbs that indicate the sacrifices were still being offered. The third observation, observation as to when it was written, it is apparently written before a major outbreak of execution of Christians, which would place it somewhere around 64 AD. And then the last observation, it was written after the infant days of the church and after the initial surge of, uh, against Christianity. You get that out of Hebrews chapter 10. So if you take those kind of internal factors together, most think the date of the book, the writing of the book, is somewhere between 63 to 64, maybe 65 A.D. Uh, Some would maybe push it all the way up to 70, but again, it has to be sometime before 70 because, again, the present tense verbs 
uh, using uh, in the sacrifices, indicating that they're still going on. So 70 AD is when the temple's raised or, or knocked down. So somewhere perhaps about a year before Nero's persecution breaks out against Christians and a few years before the temple is destroyed. Now as to the specific audience, uh, to whom is the book of Hebrews written? Uh, again, you get that uh, observation, obviously, from the title. It's written to Hebrews. Uh, the Greek manuscripts, all the ancient versions of the Greek manuscripts, give that same title to this book. Uh, in fact, there's no evidence to suggest that the book was ever known by any other name than Hebrews. So it's always been recognized as a book that is uh, written to Jewish believers, uh, most observing that it was written to an established church with established leaders. Again, you get that out of Hebrews chapter uh, 13. So again, in the book, there's no references to Gentiles. There's no problems between Jews and Gentiles in the church that are being mentioned or reflected on or information given on how to deal with that. So again, most certainly it's a congregation of strictly Jewish individuals. And with this letter, again, because it's such a Jewish flavor to it, there's all kinds of emphasis on the Levitical priesthood and then sacrifices, the temple, etc., and so forth. So these Jewish believers are more than likely mixed in with some, uh, uh, mixed in with them are some unbelievers. And the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to uh, reveal to both of them, uh, these groups, the, the merits of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The merits of the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant uh, under which they so longer, had so long lived and, and worshipped. Now the exact location of the group uh, of, of Hebrew believers is not known. Some suggest perhaps... Uh, Somewhere near Greece, uh, others per, uh, suggest perhaps other places. Uh, again, it's a community that has been reached with the truth, a community that has been evangelized by the apostles and prophets, it says in chapter 2, and, and that would be the New Testament prophets speaking about the, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, assuming that the church had been founded fairly soon after Christ's ascension, uh, by the time the letter is written, there's a small congregation uh, that exists in this area, who are suffering pressure. They're, they're under some forms of persecution. Uh, the, this group had an, enough time uh, to be taught the truth, uh, but they should have been, because they've been given enough time, uh, they should have been a little bit further along. They should have been more mature in their faith, uh, but they're not. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, for instance. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. So they knew the truth. They had enough time to mature, but they were immature. And so there's an admonition there. You should have been teachers by now. Now, that's the specific makeup, kind of getting it down. So we got a group of Jews, Hebrews, individuals, but as a more specific congregation, try to narrow it down. I think that's vitally important. I read, obviously, as I do every week, I read a lot of commentators and a lot of uh, articles and stuff on, on the issue. And, and a lot of people say many good things. But I honestly believe that John MacArthur does the best to synthesize and analyze the group that's being addressed so that we would realize that there are three basic groups uh, that are in view throughout this entire letter. And I think that's kind of vitally important to understand. And I'm in complete agreement with uh, uh, the statement that if you don't keep these three groups in mind, then the book's going to become very confusing. Uh, for example, some come and say, well, the book is written exclusively for, for Christians or exclusively to Christians. But if you take that interpretive view, then extreme problems are going to arise in a number of passages which, are, which would hardly apply to believers. And, and because so frequently believers are addressed, it couldn't have been written primarily to unbelievers uh, either. So that it must have been written recognizing the audience. There's both groups uh, within that. And I don't think that's hard to understand. We, we do that every morning, right? Uh, within the group, there's uh, whoever's being addressed in here or on live stream. There's people who are, are believers and people who have not come to faith yet. That's just a reality. So in, in these three basic groups in this uh, Jewish community that are being addressed, again, it's vital to keep that uh, grid in front of us always as we're working through. Because people get mixed up because they don't realize that foundational truth. They don't understand that reality. And especially they get mixed up when you come to trying to interpret properly uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. So let me impact it even a little bit more uh, within this group that the author is trying to write uh, to. 
so I'm going to identify the three groups. I just mentioned two, but there's actually a, another group in there. Uh, group number one, again, Hebrew Christians. A Jewish community, a Jewish congregation that are true believers in Christ. They've come out of Judaism. Uh, they've been born and raised in Judaism, and now they're born again. They've come to Christ. They really have received him as their uh, personal Messiah, their Savior. They're, they're true followers. But as a result, they're facing persecution. They're, they're pre- uh, facing a tremendous amount of pressure from, from their <coughs> own people, from their own families. They're being thrown out of the synagogue. If they would have converted to Christ, many of their families would have had a funeral for them, saying that their son and daughter to them are dead, so they just have a funeral for them. So this persecution is great, the, the conflict, the, the suffering. Uh, they're being made a, a public spectacle. They're being made a reproach. Uh, they're having their property seized, as it says in, in the 10th chapter of the book. They're suffering a, a variety of different ways in a variety of different fashions, Although they've not yet been martyred, it comes out of Hebrews 12, verse 4, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and they're striving against sin, but they're still suffering. Again, persecution by not only their families, persecution by the Jewish religious leaders, and then maybe even persecution by um, the Gentiles. Now, this group of individuals should have anticipated suffering and persecution for coming to Christ, but they didn't. And they not only didn't anticipate it, they weren't mature enough to deal with it when it came. Uh, They lacked confidence in the gospel, and consequently they lacked confidence in in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're in danger of going back. They're in danger of going back to the old standards and old patterns of Judaism. They're they're not in danger of losing their salvation, because once you come to saving faith in Christ, it's the regenerating work of God. We don't come in and out of salvation. It's God who brings us from death to life. But they're in danger because they're confusing the gospel with uh, Jewish ceremony and, and Jewish legalism. Therefore, they're weakening their faith and they're weakening their testimony. So they're having a difficulty understanding the new covenant in Christ. They're again still hung up over the old covenant in that system. They're hung up over the temple and the rituals that go on there. That's why there's a tremendous amount of discussion in this book about new and better, a greater, right? A new and better priesthood, a new and better temple, a new and better sacrifice, a new sanctuary, right? In Christ, which is so much better than the old one. So they're saved, but they're being pressured again to go back and try to hang on to uh, many of the Judaistic habits that they'd grown up with. They are exactly like we've been talking about in the evenings, uh, Romans 14. They're a whole congregation of weaker brothers. That's this group. Now, again, we don't know the exact human author of the book, but we do know that this author is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is directing this letter to, these, to this Hebrew congregation to strengthen their faith in Christ, to strengthen their faith in the new covenant, to show them they don't need the old, especially the temple and all that's going on there, because the temple is going to be destroyed, raised by Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D., so they don't need that. They have Christ. Christ is better. They don't need the Old Testament sacrifices. They don't need the Old Testament priesthood. They don't need any of the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies. All, they don't need all of the never-ending sacrifices. They have a new and a better way with a new and better covenant, a new and better priest, a new and better priesthood that brings a new and better sacrifice again. That's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this book is written to encourage them, these who are struggling, and ultimately, again, the, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the human writer, is trying to encourage this group of believers to hold on, to hold fast to the person of Jesus Christ, to see his preeminence, to understand his superiority, and not run back into the types and the shadows when the substance is in their very presence. The second category of the people who are being addressed in this letter are Jewish non-Christians who are intellectually convinced but not converted, intellectually convinced and not converted. Uh, we have these people all around us. Again, perhaps there's people like that, like this in this category, in this congregation this morning or watching uh, via the live stream. We've had people in the, in the visible church like this throughout the history of the church. P- people who've heard the truth of Jesus Christ. People who are intellectually convinced that he is indeed who he claimed to be. Yet they're not willing to make the commitment of faith to come all the way to Christ. People intellectually convinced but spiritually uncommitted to come to Christ. 
And again, these people are being exhorted and challenged by the Holy Spirit to repent, to come to saving faith in Christ, to submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You ask the question, well, why won't they come? Why won't they come to Christ? For a variety of different reasons, perhaps, but I think ultimately the issue is pride. It's pride. Pride of intellect. Pride that would have to be set aside where you'd have to admit the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Pride that causes men to desire the approval of uh, of men where they don't want other men to look down on them to think that they're weak or fools for believing in this quote-unquote Jesus nonsense. It's pride. And their pride, they're more concerned about what other men think than they are concerned about the truth. They're more concerned about the approval of men than God's approval. It's exactly what John says in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. They love the approval of men more than the approval of God. So they're not, make, they're not willing to make the sacrifice to come all the way to Christ. So again, there's a variety of different uh, reasons, perhaps, in the fallen mind of fallen men for not repenting and coming to Christ, but ultimately it's all foolishness. It puts one's soul in eternal peril and eternal danger. Because when a person is pointed to the truth, a person acknowledges the truth of the gospel, and they acknowledge the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they won't repent and come all the way to Christ. They're guilty of a great sin, and again, in great eternal danger. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, I think, addresses that group specifically in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who've been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now that's probably, those verses are probably the most, cause the most serious interpretive challenge in the entire book. Accurately identifying the spiritual condition of the ones that are being addressed there. But that phrase, once enlightened, I think is often mistakenly taken to refer to Christians. And then the accompanied warning is wrongly taken to indicate the danger of losing one's salvation if you fall away or they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. But there really is no mention of this group ever being saved. There's nothing in this group that describes them in any kind of terms that you would apply to believers, such as holy or born again, saints, righteous, etc., So a wrong interpretation of this passage of Scripture is going to cause you to inaccurately identify the spiritual condition of the ones who are addressed there. So in this case, again, they're just unbelievers. They're unbelievers who've been exposed to God's redemptive truth. Uh, Maybe even some of them have made a profession in faith, but they've they've never exercised genuine repentance, genuine saving faith. So the man or the woman who's being addressed in this category is the one who's heard the truth concerning the gospel, the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. They have been intellectually convinced, but again, they have failed to repent. They failed to submit themselves to Christ. They won't come all the way. So again, the man or the woman who refuses to come all the way to, to Christ is without hope. They are without excuse. Because again, they've not repented and not placed their faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. Hebrews 10, 26, if you go on sinning, uh, willfully uh, sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's a great warning to this group of individuals. That again, the greatest sin that a man or a woman can commit is to come under the preaching and the hearing of the word of God, to come under the hearing and the preaching uh, of the gospel, to understand it intellectually, to be convinced of its truth, but then be unwilling to repent and ultimately reject Christ. Hebrews ten twenty seven says for that person they can expect a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fairy fire that consumes the adversaries. Hebrews ten verse twenty nine, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Again there may be someone here this morning in this room or again listening on the live stream that falls into that category. Heard the truth, understand the truth, won't repent. That, that's an inter- eternally dangerous category 
to have yourself in. Hear the truth of the gospel. Know the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. But you refuse to repent. Because of your pride. It's an eternal tragedy. And then the third group, again, that most certainly makes up the people who are being addressed by the author of the book of Hebrews, is just Hebrew non-Christians. Jewish unbelievers in the congregation that are not converted, unconverted, not convinced, no interest in Christ. And the Holy Spirit, out of His kindness and grace, is addressing that group too. For example, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes what? Judgment. That can't possibly be written to a believer. Because Romans 8.1 says there's now therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So within every community of believers, with every congregation, there's always people that fall into these categories. There's always unbelievers. But again, God in His kindness proclaims the gospel through His Word, and He calls men and women to repent, come to Christ, come to faith in Christ before it's too late. So again, I think you've got these three very specific groups of uh, individuals in view in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Number one, Hebrew Christians that are struggling. Uh, Number two, Jewish non-Christians who are intellectually convinced but not converted. And then just Hebrew non-Christians. So that's the key to interpreting the book, understanding which group is being addressed because if you fail to do that, then you're going to have come to a misunderstanding of uh, what the author is saying. And again, just that verse I just read out of Hebrews 9, that can't be possibly uh, being uh, spoken of a believer. So we just need to be mindful of that paradigm, uh, the, the grid to put over this as we work through the, through the text. Primarily the book is written to believers. Uh, again, periodically there's warnings to the second and third group. Uh, again, both of these second and third groups really fall into the category of unbelieving, unbelieving groups. Uh, and it's a challenge, again, uh, to those who fail to come all the way to Christ, uh, intellectually convinced uh, but not converted, the unconverted, uh, come to faith in Christ, right? Re- reject the world, come to faith in Christ. So for the true believer, it's a, it's a word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement, and it's meant to encourage one's confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. So again, to the other two groups, uh, the non-believing groups, it's a word of warning, to come all the way to Christ. Again, place your faith in Christ uh, lest you eternally perish. In fact, there are six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There's warnings against drifting from the things which we've heard in Hebrews chapter 2, disbelieving the voice of God in chapter 3, degenerating from elementary principles of Christ, uh, uh, chapter 5, despising the knowledge of the truth, chapter 10, devaluing the grace of God in chapter 12, and then departing from him who speaks again in chapter 12. If you want to have just a general overall outline of the the book, you could divide it up into three parts. Part number one would be the superiority of the person of Christ. Part number two would be the superiority of his work. And then part number three, the superiority of the Christian's walk of faith. Again, the general thematic outline of the book basically is the superiority of Christ, the preeminence of Christ over everything and everyone. And again, the fact that Jesus is better. He's better than anything and everyone. He's better than any person from the Old Testament. He's better than any of the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the Old Testament institution, better than any, old, any ritual found in the Old Testament. Again, the superiority, the absolute superiority of the person of Jesus Christ is, is the theme of this book from the beginning to the end. So in, in the context of the book, again, written to Jewish individuals, uh, they would have realized exactly what we have been studying the, the last three weeks or so together. The fact is, it's a dangerous thing to come into the presence of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Again, no man can look at God to live. That's what the Old Testament a Jew would have understood. That's what these people would have understood. So everyone who's receiving this letter coming out of a Jewish background believer or unbeliever, would have some kind of a working knowledge of the book of Leviticus. The fact that God is holy. And the fact that God is holy, to worship Him properly, to approach Him, you come the way He says to come. You come by way of sacrificial offering. Sacrificial offering always mediated by a priest because of the sinfulness of sin and the desperate need of man to be cleansed from sin. 
And because of man's sin and God's holiness, again, it requires a costly gift for reconciliation and for forgiveness to, to occur, for atonement, for propitiation to be made. Wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That what is the what is uh, the blood by reason of life that makes atonement, or it is by uh, the blood that, by reason uh, by the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. So the blood has to be shed. So again, because the people and the priests continued to sin, uh, they, they needed a sacrifice, and the sac- need for sacrifices never ended. Uh, even as I told you the last time, uh, even after the Day of Atonement, what happens the next morning? Right, this great Day of Atonement, 15 sacrifices being made. Next day, uh, the priest wakes up and he's got to do the same thing. Morning and evening sacrifice. Because all the Old Testament sacrifices, even on the Day of Atonement, none of those could actually remove sin. None of those could actually bring a propitiation and atonement. So again, what is needed is a greater sacrifice, a greater priest. And again, that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb, as we read out of the book of the Revelation, right? The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God's perfect priest. God's perfect sacrifice for sin. Infinitely better. Uh, the greater Lord Jesus Christ. Infinitely greater, infinitely better than the imperfect, incomplete provisions under the old covenant. He brings in the new covenant. So it's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's remedy for sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, he purifies sin. Chapter 2, he makes propitiation for sin. Uh, chapter 9, verse 26, he puts away sin. Uh, 9, verse 28, he, he bears the sins of many. Chapter 10, uh, he offers one sacrifice for sin. Right? He was the one who was offered for sin. Uh, and the one who takes away sin, Hebrews chapter 10. He's the one who cleansed worshipers from uh, a conscience of sin. Uh, he's the one who sanctifies people through his blood. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I told you, it's also the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us access into the very presence of God. That's why the writer says in uh, Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near uh, with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and may find grace to help in our time of need. Now, that's just some background information I think we need to have before we uh, move further uh, with the exposition. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to at least get into the text. So again, make sure you're there. Hebrews 1. Verse 1, again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power, and when he made purification of sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there's just a tremendous, obviously, just a tremendous amount of theology packed into those three verses. In fact, an entire Christology concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And the author is going to say seven truths concerning the person of Christ, depending on how you want to count them. I'm going to take them that way. The author specifically wants us to see these truths. So the, so that we would trust Christ more, that we would grow in our knowledge of him, that uh, we, we might believe him always. So the first truth the author wants us to understand about Jesus Christ is he's the superior word. He's the superior word. Again, Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So, so the writer of the book of Hebrews is not going to waste any time here. He's going to get right to the point. No introduction, no, no small talk, and no mention of sender and addressee or any words of greeting. He just gets right to the point. And then he informs us immediately the fact that God is. Again, Hebrews 1, verse 1, God. And the, the, the whole book opens up very much the way uh, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God, right? And the writer doesn't uh, make any kind of persuasive arguments uh, that the skeptic might... Uh, ask uh, uh, if God exists or not. He doesn't do that. He just declares the reality of the fact. God is. And that's the truth. Now, no man sits in judgment over the word of God. The reality, God is. And, and you ignore that fact to your own personal peril, uh, to your own personal eternal destruction, because unbelief is never an intellectual issue. It's not a matter of piling up evidence. Uh, unbelief is rebellion and sin against God. And the writer declares the fact of God, then the writer declares the fact that God has spoken. 
God is a speaking God. God reveals himself to men. He's the revealer of truth to men. God, after he spoke long ago, is the reference back to the Old Testament at times. So again, it's important for us to realize that God in his grace chooses to reveal himself to us as men. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know what he's like. He wants us to know so that men might come and write to, men might know how to come and write relationship to him. Because apart from self-revelation, the self-revelation of God, man would have no idea. Men can speculate, they can philosophize all they want about God, what he's like. What man thinks he can do to approach him. Again, that's all the worldly religions, but the only person's opinion that matters is God. And again, it's God by himself who suggests or demands how he is approached. And in and of himself, men can never come to uh, that knowledge of truth or what God is like and how he might be approached. And man can't do that because of sin and Satan. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They might not see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. Sin and Satan will never allow the natural man to come to any kind of understanding of the true and the living God. God has to speak. God has to reveal himself. So again, man on his own can't do that. No man seeks for God, it says in Romans chapter 3. No man can know God. All have sinned and all fall short of what? The glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Man can't find God in his own way. Man can't find God in his own. God in his kindness has to reveal himself to men. God in his kindness has chosen to do that, to speak to men through his word. And all men, again, would be forever complete in complete, utter spiritual darkness without the ability to know him whatsoever if God hadn't spoken, but God has. God after he spoke long ago. So again, this God who speaks, who speaks to men, he has something to say about his son, and he wants people to hear it. God, again, after he spoke long ago, he's not silent. So again, from the very dawn of history, he's been speaking. From the time of Adam and Eve, he's been speaking. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, he's been speaking. He's not silent. He is the source of information, the source of truth, the source of communication, the only source of true revelation. Because again, God wants us to know the truth. And again, he specifically wants us to know the truth about his son. He wants us to understand the superiority of the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand the superiority of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know the superiority of the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. After he spoke long ago to the fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, perhaps. He he spoke to specific people, and he does it in three ways, the author says. Number one, in the prophets, right? All the Old Testament prophets. God's ordained messengers from from Moses to Malachi, uh, to whom God revealed his will and his word to. Men wrote down what God said. A God who speaks, reveals himself to them. And again, all through the Old Testament, he's pointing forward to his son who is coming. Secondly, he does it by, in many portions, God who spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions. Uh, Again, the word that God spoke, he divided into many parts, many divisions, many categories. He spoke in multifaceted times and multifaceted ways. He spoke one way to Adam, another way to to Abraham. He spoke another way to Moses. Uh, It was a development of truth over time. It was a progress, a progress of revelation uh, over many centuries. And then lastly, the writer says he spoke in many ways. The adverb there just, just means that that God spoke in many different manners, many different fashions, many different ways. Sometimes he spoke through visions, sometimes through dreams, sometimes uh, through symbols, sometimes face-to-face communication, sometimes through a supernatural intervention in history as well as natural phenomenon, sometimes through storms and plagues and other uh, historical events. Everything we know uh, in, in the Old Testament, everything that was revealed from God to men came through a variety of different ways in diverse fashions and through a variety of different times. Again, all fragmented, all little pieces, a progressive system of revelation, light getting brighter and brighter as time goes on. So again, you, that back at the beginning, you learn of God's uh, uh, hatred for sin, the judgment of the garden. You learn for God's hatred of sin and wickedness as it continues to, to grow in the world through the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see God's hatred for sin and the potential of forgiveness uh, through a sacrifice, through blood sacrifices. Uh, for the, the nation of the people of 
of, of Israel, that, that, that nation, they, they learned about the fact that God cared for them, that God redeemed them again uh, from slavery and their bondage in, in Egypt. Uh, he parted the Red Sea for them, made provision for them, uh, a path of escape, etc., and so forth. So all, the, uh, all through the Old Testament, God's giving various visions and types and pictures of things to educate men about himself all along the way, to reveal himself to men. So that again, men over time, God reveals himself progressively. And again, as I just said, the light grows brighter and brighter. He's pointing men towards the truth. One truth after another, the ultimate truth who has come would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. That's how God speaks currently. This is how God speaks currently to men. He speaks to men through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the superior word. He is the superior revelation. Jesus Christ is God's complete word. Jesus Christ is God's final complete revelation to mankind. So in these last days, this is how he speaks. Now, last days is just the entire church age, all the way to the time of, uh, through uh, the climax of redemptive history. So these last days, that little phraseology speaks of the time of the Messiah, the time of Christ. And ever since Christ has appeared in his incarnation, this has really technically been the last days. And he is the superior revelation to the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Again, Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation of God to mankind. And Jesus Christ is God's final word. All God has to say to men, he has said in Christ. And he has nothing more to say than what he's already said in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the greatest prophet. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet. Jesus Christ Christ is the greatest expositor. Again, God has nothing to say after he spoke in Jesus Christ, who is the superior word, the ultimate final revelation uh, of God. Now, it's it's interesting, I think, here in this text, is the author of the book of Hebrews doesn't say in his text that God speaks through his son's words. doesn't say that. It just says he speaks through his son. So he's going to describe his son. Who's the son? Now, I can't go into all of it this morning, obviously, but just in the time we have left, just give me a little bit of highlights here. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews does, he just starts explaining who this son is. So the second point here is he's the one who's the heir of all things. He's the one who's the heir of all things. Christ is the possessor of all things. Christ is preeminent over all things. Jesus Christ, whom God appointed heir, H-E-I-R, heir of all things. So basically what he's saying, look, everything that exists uh, ultimately comes under his control. The control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. That means what? Everything. It means you. It means me. It means all that we possess. Who we are. All we own. It ultimately all belongs to him. Because Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. He is the possessor of all things. The writer number three is going to tell us that Jesus is the sovereign creator through whom he also made the world. And what a tremendous statement that phrase is. It's not the word cosmos as we have for like terra firma for earth. It's the word ionis. Literally means he's the maker of the ages. So Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of the physical world. That's true. But he's also the creator of time, space, matter. And everything in it belongs to him because he's the one who created it. Everything and everyone is under his ultimate sovereign control. And listen, nothing happens in this universe by chance. He's the sovereign. He's the one who controls all things. He controls all destinies. He controls, again, all outcomes. He controls everything that happens. You can go to bed at night and sleep. Because Jesus Christ is in control. That's practical. You don't have to be in fear. We're talking about this this morning in the, in the elders meeting. Everything this world does, everything the rulers of this world do, being under the prince of the power of the air, is always to promote fear. You should fear this virus and fear that virus and you should fear this thing and you should do... It's always fear. Jesus Christ controls everything. He is the sovereign creator. He's the heir. It all belongs to him. Not only that, in verse 3, number four, the fourth point concerning the person of Christ, he's the radiance of God's glory. 
He's the radiance of God's glory. The word radiance means that which shines forth, the source of light. So Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The glory of God is in him because he's God in flesh. Now, oftentimes when he's here incarnate, the, the, the glory was veiled because of that flesh, but at times it came out. You remember the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Christ is revealed. Uh, the, the glory of Christ is revealed to some level in his ability to heal, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. So God's glory is put on display. It's seen in, in the radiance of, of uh, Christ uh, in Christ's essential glory. Because he goes on and says he's the radiance of his glory and he says he's the exact representation of God's nature. So again, Jesus Christ is, is the exact representation of God in nature and essence. No one has seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ reveals him. So if you want to know what God looks like, you look at the person of Jesus Christ. The fifth point the author makes here is that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. But with his sustaining power, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now the idea here is not so much that he upholds the universe like dead weight, like uh, the mythical Greek god Atlas, right, holding the world up. But the idea that he upholds all things by the word of his power means that he's the one who carries all things forward. He's the one who carries all things forward to their appointed course. Jesus Christ, the most tremendous power. The, the one who has absolute authority, the greatest force in the universe. He's the one who holds it all together. He, he's the one who holds the rotation of the earth together, the rotation of the planets. He's the one who controls the seasons happening. He's the one who holds gravity so everything stays in its place. He has it all under his power, all under his sovereign control and management. And everything is working towards his predetermined end because he upholds and directs all things by his word. Then number six, Jesus is the sin-bearing substitute. He says when he had made purifications, he sat down. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down. I mean, something, again, no one else could do. No Old Testament sacrifice ever sufficed. When he made purification, he sat down. It's only he who knew no sin that could be made sin for us or be made the sin-bearer on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's only Jesus Christ that could do that. Only the pure, perfect, sinless Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from our sins, that he might purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then lastly, the author says here, number seven, Jesus is the Supreme Lord. You go, how, how do you get that? Well, look where he sat down. Jesus is the Supreme Lord. Where did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. At his ascension, he returned to the right hand of the Father. He took that choice place of honor and authority and power that belongs to him because of his relationship with the Father. And the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And there he is right at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, presently ruling over the church, presently ruling all over all the angelic hosts of heaven, presently the one who's ultimately in control of this world and all that is in it, and it's all working out for his purposes. The work of the Father that he sent Christ to do in the world has been accomplished. The finality of the atoning work of Christ, therefore he sits down. Remember I told you in the Old Testament, priests never sit down. The work was never done. Jesus Christ sits down. All things are complete in him. All things are working together for the counsel of his, counsel of his will. The glory uh, of the Father is in heaven and for the glory of the blessed person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just getting started. This is just introduction. All the points to the deity of Christ. So again, to the original Jewish audience being faced with the temptation of abandoning Christ and running back to Judaism. Well, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Because Jesus Christ is the superior one. The spirit of the prophets, spirit of the prophets. The spirit of the prophets, spirit of the priests, all earthly priests, all earthly kings. He is the superior one. And not only that, Jesus Christ is the better one. Right? He is the better, the supreme, superior revelation from God. Jesus Christ is how God speaks to men. 
Jesus Christ is the one whom we and all men will bow before. The one alone who is worthy of our praise. The one who alone is worthy of our love, our adoration, and our very lives. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this kind of very quick introduction to uh, this most wonderful book. The book of Hebrews that points us to the superiority of the person of Jesus Christ. What tremendous, encouraging truth. And Lord, I pray that as we study this book together, you just burn that reality in our heart that there's nothing or no one better or superior to Christ. And what we all need is a greater love for and a greater understanding of this dear person whom you've given, um, the one who is above all. So we thank you for the time that we're just launching off here into this great study that's going to take us a while to get through, I would assume, uh, the study of the book of Hebrews that points us to Christ, that encourages our heart to never turn away from him to anything less because he is all. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.